We have two readings tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, and you'll find that in the blue Bibles on the seat in front of you on page 181. And Mark chapter 2, 23 to chapter 3, verse 6, and that's on page 1003. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And then we're popping over to page 1003. which is Mark chapter 2 and verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. And that's Mark chapter 1, just in case you were wondering. But we are going to go to Mark chapter 2. And we are going to start on verse 23. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look! Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then they said to him, Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. 
Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, as Joey said, Miriam can't be with us tonight, and we are praying for her to um, for her back, which is most uncomfortable at the moment, to be healed. But she has wonderfully been able to record this sermon, and we're going to pray that God will apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for the truth of what you want us to do that is in the Bible. It's not hidden. It's very clear, and we ask that your Holy Spirit will help us to apply it to our lives in the reality of our days to know just how you want us to live, how to live and work and rest and play and live in the rhythms of life that you ordained for your glory. Amen. I'd like to start with a poem, if that's okay. It's called Desert, and it goes like this. Forty years to untangle the soul. The stars of slavery run deep, calluses of servitude, a desperate and selfish heart of a nation, broken with beatings too many times to trust God. Forty years to untangle the soul. Teach us how not to be slaves or slave masters, be the buffer where the flow of hurt stops. Break the circuit built into our backs from 400 years of slavery. Teach us, oh, teach us how to be free. Lord, who heals, unwinds, untangles our souls, we have grown crooked with fear, our eyes opaque with slavery. How much divine spit must be rubbed in our eyes before we see reality and not just Trees walking around. Lord, who heals, unwinds, untangles our souls, we need you to take us away from the crowd to a quiet place and heal our beings with mud made of your spit and dust from dust to dust. Renew your creation act. Regrow what you did in the first. Untangle our souls and send us out to live and speak of your freedom, 40 years to untangle the soul. We are made in the image of God and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. We start at the very beginning. I'm told that's a very good place to start. Genesis 2 verses 2 to 3 says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word to cease or to stop, and it isn't actually used in Genesis. But Deuteronomy points us backwards in giving the first reason for the existence of Sabbath, because God rested on the seventh day and made it holy. That is, he set it apart for himself. The implication is not that God needs rest. There is no sense of exhaustion after the work of creation, no need to recharge. God's decision to create again, not to create again, rather, on the seventh day, is just that, a decision and an acknowledgement of work completed and accomplished. The book of Genesis is a combination of narrative and poetry. One of the interesting poetic elements is this. The structure of six days of work and a seventh day of completion points to other ancient Near Eastern poetic narratives of temple building. 
The suggestion is that God's act of creation was an act of building his temple, an overflow of his love and creativity, a world to give him glory. The seventh day is the day when the temple begins to be used. It is the beginning of worship. And the absence of an evening and morning rhythm in this verse suggests that this season of worship is ongoing. God built the temple, and on day seven, he cut the ribbon. So the world we live in is a representation of the completion of God's work. It may not have all played out yet. We have not yet finished the story, but this book is not an incomplete draft. The ending is locked in. We live in God's Sabbath. When looking at other creation narratives from the time, we read of ancient Near Eastern gods who created out of violence and death. In those narratives, humans were created by war and the shedding of the gods' blood, or as slaves to serve those gods. Those gods were made in the image of humans, and their work, violence, and tumult was never complete. But the Israelite god finished his work in six days, and then he stopped and invited his creation to experience that ceasing and to rest in his glory. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. When looking at this day of rest in Genesis, some commentators call this a creation mandate, meaning that it's a law built into the very act of creation. But since Genesis was not a legal text, rather a poetic creation narrative, we can't take it as law. And this matters because of the way that we think about law and grace. Certainly we see ourselves called to live like the God in whose image we are made, But this isn't proclaimed as law until Exodus, which calls for this day to be remembered and kept holy. That is kept at the forefront of the Israelites' mind and set apart from the other days of the week. In this Exodus narrative, we encounter the Israelites having just stepped out of 400 years of slavery. They have been defined and destroyed by a narrative of endless desperate production and consumption. Pharaoh had locked himself in a spiral of desperation for production and wealth, and he broke the backs of a people with his narrative of endless work, violence, and tumult. Even the Israelites' day off was given over to the collecting of straw for bricks. They were forced to be the reason for their own enslavement. They had to produce bricks, and if they wanted to produce bricks, they had to gather straw. This slavery not only forced them into endless productivity, it broke their ability to care for each other. It defined them. We see this in Moses' initial dealings with the Hebrew slaves. He thought that if he removed the slave master, he would be freeing the slave. But that very next time that he went out to meet the Hebrews, he discovers the slaves destroying each other. They have imbibed their slavery into their very souls. And in the absence of an overlord, they act violence out on each other. And this is not just an ancient Israelite problem. We see again and again in society today that when a people is oppressed, is given its definition only in the language of slavery, violence or subservience, they act out their violence on those either below them on the social ladder or on those around them in an act of lateral violence. We see this in the outworking of colonisation, of racism and sexism, or even in a workplace where overwork, verbal or emotional violence and tumult are defining cultures and many of us have or may still work in those places. And so here is Israel, broken with beatings too many times to trust God, and his response is to give them the word Sabbath. The Sabbath commandment is the fourth of ten, and it creates a pause between two themes. The first three commandments address the way that Israel is to relate to God. They begin with a proclamation of who God is and what he has done for his people, 
And then the last five commandments describe is an Israelite's relationship to others, both other Israelites and foreign nations. But this commandment, the fourth, the Sabbath commandment, links the two themes by teaching Israel how it is to find its definition. It is out of that definition, this day set apart for rest and for God, that Israel can live out of its radical new nationhood. We are made in the image of God and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God has given them a new identity and a means to live out of it. This Sabbath is the symbol of the Mosaic Covenant in the same way that circumcision was the symbol of the Abrahamic Covenant and the rainbow of, God, of God's covenant with Noah. Walter Brueggemann states in his book Sabbath is Resistance. At the taproot of this divine commitment to relationship, that is covenant, rather than commodity, which is the bridge they were forced to produce, is the capacity and willingness of this God to rest. This is the God who rested in Genesis and the God who rescued his people from slavery. And these are the two reasons that are given for the law of Sabbath. But these two reasons are not are complementary, not contradictory. Creation and salvation are two aspects of the one theological reality. We are made in the image of God and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. The command of Sabbath is not just because it's a good idea for humans to take a holiday once in a while. It wasn't just that God wanted to introduce the weekend really early on in biblical history. God's people are told to set the day apart and to take this law seriously, even on pain of death. And this can feel super intense to read about now. Why would Moses say in Exodus 25:2, whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death? It's a good question. As God leads his people out of the wilderness and gives them a new identity, we see time and again that they kept wanting to return to their old identity. From golden calves to repeated demands to return to their land of their enslavement, Israel fell back into slavery over and over again. But to be God's people required this utterly new identity. Even a few people living out of their old identity, trying to spend their Sabbath getting ahead, would bring out that spirit of competition and desperation that had defined an enslaved nation. God was not just offering a good idea, he was presenting a sacred law and a divine characteristic. If the nation of Israel wanted to live like God, they needed to rest in his work, not their own. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. And so, to quote Brueggemann again, At Sinai, Israel made a defining choice. It decided to trust the God who made heaven and earth, to rely on the guaranteed reliabilities of the creation, and to eschew the anxiety that comes from the loss of confidence in the sureness of the creator and the goodness of creation. So what happened next? Was it all hunky-dory for Israel, now that they had this fourth commandment? Well, there's a lot more books between Exodus and Deuteronomy and Jesus, so I'm guessing no. Israel continued to fall back into slavery of various sorts, to commodity, to being like their fellow nations, to idolatry and rebellion and destruction. And while some sort of celebration of Sabbath continued, a false or fake obedience resulted only in further destruction. Here, Brueggemann uses language of commodity and acquisitiveness to describe an identity that is found only in production uh, and in what is owned and earned, versus neighbourliness to describe living in godly community. 
In the Old Testament, he says, the prophets in their various modes of rhetoric consistently voice a critique of the turn to commodity and issue a summons to return to covenantal ways for which the restfulness of Sabbath may be taken as a sign and measure. The restfulness of Sabbath is an active resistance to commodity acquisition. But in Acquisitive Israel, so, so well represented by Solomon, Sabbath became a fate occasion, an official act of work stoppage. It was in fact a festival shot through with anxiety and aggressiveness, fed by commodity acquisitiveness and which Israel had become, with which Israel had become enthralled. Such inauthentic Sabbath provides no rest and leads to a fundamental alienation from God and from neighbour. And so we come to Jesus, who both fulfills Sabbath law and turns out of the temple those shopkeepers and money changers who would squeeze out the Gentiles from their permitted temple courts in exchange for a few extra coins. Just as the Pharisees would squeeze out a man with a broken hand from the chance of healing in exchange for a bit more control over who has access to God in their tangled web of rules. Jesus recognises in all of them the desire to return to slavery. Either the trader in the temple court, driven by lust for wealth, or the Pharisees by seeking to satisfy an endless litany of laws. Neither of them lived out of the identity that God offered the newly born nation of Israel in the desert below Sinai. Sabbath is a challenge both to the idolatry of production and to a works-based faith. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. The shape of Sabbath had changed somewhat by the time Jesus was born. There were set sacrifices laid out in Numbers and in Ezekiel, and religious practices built around visiting the temple or the synagogue, as Jesus often did, and we read about that in the New Testament. And in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, the early church began to meet on a Sunday instead of, the day of, instead of a Saturday as the day of Jesus' resurrection. And while the day of the week was different, the communal faith practices of gathering and worshipping and learning together were in many ways carried over from the Old Testament Sabbath. So our New Testament, our new church practice of rest is not that distant. And what about today? How do we respond to this Sabbath? Is it a law or is it a principle to us? Now certainly there are some cultures and denominations that continue to emphasise the tight structures of an Old Testament Sabbath. And Jesus himself, as well as his followers, lived within many of those frameworks. Even the women who witnessed the resurrection only did so because they waited out the Sabbath before going to anoint his body. But Jesus went beyond the structures of Sabbath to the spirit of the law. As we see in Mark, in the reading we had from Mark, Jesus' disciples began to relax into the freedom that Christ offered and they let go of the Pharisaic fear of picking bits of grain in case it somehow turned into work. And Jesus pushed back against the Pharisees' judgment and went even further to highlight the hypocrisy in their laws. With a tight adherence to sabbatical laws, but a complete disregard for their fellow humans, they were little better off than the Hebrew slaves under Pharaoh. But as Christ proclaimed, the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. And the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. So we know that we are not required to live out the law of the Sabbath, but what about the spirit of the law? What about the Genesis paradigm? We face the same temptations today that Israel faced under Pharaoh. We can go back to Brueggemann who says, it is impossible 
is it not, to overestimate the level of anxiety that now characterizes social relationships in our society of acute restlessness. That violent restlessness makes neighborliness nearly impossible. None of this is new. All of it is much chronicled among us. All of it is as old as Pharaoh's Egypt. We are told almost from day dot, usually subliminally, but often explicitly, that our value before people, and as many religions would also argue before God, comes from what we can produce and achieve. In school, in creative ventures, in our work, in our struggles with retirement, and in caring for those who don't produce any longer. Even in our rest time, we find ourselves driven to look for the next best thing to purchase or produce that will define us or save us. We describe rest as procrastination. We struggle to sit still without movement. We feel guilty if we don't produce enough new things each year, each new week. But even if we were to become expert holiday takers, and some people are, we would still be missing something. Many of us may dream of a life of leisure, but this is not Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day to cease work. It is a day to separate our identity from what we produce or purchase. But it is also a day to be set apart to God. We are given a new identity to take up. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. The process of writing this sermon has been a complex one for me, because I wanted to do it well, and so I should. The last thing we want to do in approaching the word of God and the ministry of preaching is to rest on our ego or assume that anything will do. Miriam says the voice in my head, don't screw this up, do the work, do the prayer, no one wants a crappy sermon. But as I continued to read and reflect, this very topic was tugging and teasing away from me the anxiety of that voice. Not only that, I find myself knocked out with illness and bedridden, first with the flu a couple of weeks ago, and then this Friday when I went to pick up a sock, my back went completely, hence why I can't drive to church and preach this in person. And it's been a humbling and a frustrating time, and I'm painfully reminded to question where my identity lies and what my ego is doing. We can and should still seek to glorify God in the work and rest that we do, but the frustration, the restlessness and fear that comes in when I forget where my identity is, that's not of God. God has given me a new identity, and he's given you one too. We are made in the image of God, and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. So while we may not need to check a Pharisaic list of laws to achieve Sabbath, we're still called to keep it in some shape or form, because Sabbath is what tells us what our new identity is. And when we don't live out of it, we fall back into the torturous drive of the Hebraic slave. So what does this look like in practice today for us? Well, the shape of Sabbath can look different in different contexts and cultures. When I grew up in Egypt, the weekend was Friday and Saturday, so a Sunday day of rest was irrelevant. For shift workers, for hospitality workers, for students and staffers, a Saturday or a Sunday Sabbath can be a battle. But we can take principles from the biblical practices of Sabbath. Firstly, it's not just a break. We know that it is a time to cease work, to put down the identity of production. But it is also a time to pick up our new identity, to set aside a day to God. And while rest can and will look different for everyone, I find this question helpful. In this day, this time, this activity of rest, is it pointing me towards God or away from God? 
Secondly, it's not just a half hour of a lunch or two hours strolling on our phones in bed before we sleep. The biblical Sabbath went from sunset to sunset, a full 24 hours that started with pause and sleep and ended with pause and sleep. While not everyone can manage 24 hours, a time of rest that starts and ends with an act of trust in God, sleep, is so valuable. My mentor told me once as I described to her my lockdown practice of napping and how guilty it made me feel, although I couldn't and shouldn't nap all the time, it appeared that napping for me was an act of trust in God. In the midst of anxiety, activity, drivenness and restlessness, I could stop and trust that my identity was in Christ and he would hold the world together until I woke up again and even beyond that. And thirdly, it's not a day to get ahead in productivity. In Exodus, Moses specifically condemns those who try to gather more manna than they need for a day or go looking for extra manna on Sabbath. If we say we are trusting God, we better live it. As we live out of this way of trusting God by taking time to rest in him, we are affirming the coming kingdom of God when all brokenness will be healed and all frantic needs will cease. And imagine if the whole world lived that way. And fourthly, it is a day that can be disrupted, a day that is under the Son of Man. Jesus made time to rest, but he was deeply interruptible. So much of his ministry was made up of incidental interactions and interruptions when he stopped and engaged with others, bringing life to them and glory to God. But when those times were interrupted, Jesus made other times to rest. He made a point of getting away and being still before God. Which brings us to our next point. He says, we read in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Stillness and silence are outward expressions of still and quiet spirits. They are also the outward practices that teach a still and quiet spirit. And man, that is hard. We live now more than ever in a constant shrill of noise and movement. Even when we lay on our beds, most of us are scrolling or listening or thinking or binging. I'm as invested in my phone as the next person, quite possibly more, and I wouldn't say that social media is a sin or even the act of unwinding using tech or listening to worship music on repeat, but when we cannot practice silence, how can we hope to discern the voice of Jesus in the quiet? How can we give way to a life that is centred around a restfulness in God if we are perpetuating our own inner restlessness with constant noise and motion? We need practices of silence and stillness to pick up the new identity which the Lord offers us. We are made in the image of God and we are defined by the saving work of Christ. So where do we start? It took Israel 40 years to even begin to grasp what a Sabbath identity could mean. And even then they so often screwed it up. And so will we. But we have the Holy Spirit to teach and transform us and the grace of God to sustain and define us. In the act of letting go of our slavery to production or commodity, to movement or noise, that act takes time and it takes practice. Maybe we should begin with five minutes. So instead of prayers for the world today, we're going to try a different type of prayer as a community, that of stillness before God. When I was first taught the practice of contemplative silence, I was given a concept, an idea, a story to sit with, and it was, be still and think on the fact that there is nothing you could do to make God love you more and nothing you could do to make God love you less. Or, be still and every time a new thought enters your mind, present it to God 
and then return to stillness before him. Or if you are visual, you can focus on the picture of Jesus coming up on the screen. So now, sit back in your chairs. Get comfortable. Open your palms in your lap in a posture of openness and submission to God. And take five minutes. The service leader will keep time so you don't have to. Let's take a small moment to turn towards the big God of the Sabbath. Amen.